Hello, and welcome to Governance Matters from Corporate Secretary, the show where we examine the work of governance professionals and the latest developments they face. I'm your host, Editor-at-Large, Ben Maiden. Later in this episode, we'll be talking about some of the important takeaways from Corporate Secretary's recent Summer ESG Integration Forum. Many people at the event were focused on the pushback against ESG, although there are also plenty of positive noises about its future. But we start today by speaking with Keir Gums. Keir is Chief Legal Officer with Broadridge Financial Solutions and was previously Deputy Corporate Secretary and Deputy General Counsel at Uber. He's also Board Chair at the Society for Corporate Governance. Keir kindly took some time out from a well-deserved vacation to speak with me about the role of the society and themes affecting its members. Of course, one of those is artificial intelligence, and he shared his insights on some of the ways governance teams are and can be using their technology, the safeguards companies should be considering, and potential ethical issues that AI raises. Well, hi Keir, thanks for joining us. First off, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the society. Could you sort of talk us through a little bit about um, what led you to get involved? and obviously become chair of its board. Sure, so uh, the society is a great organization. I've been involved with the society for almost all of my career, including when uh, I was a a very baby lawyer uh, at a a law firm. And over the course of that career, it's just been a tremendous resource for me in in so many ways. And I have to say being chair for me is a bucket list item. I I mean, I really was flattered to be considered for the role last year, was thrilled when uh, I was actually appointed and have been enjoying the experience so far. It's a great organization for anyone who's evolved in corporate governance. I mean, obviously, we've evolved from just being composed of corporate secretaries to now we, we've got a variety of other players in the corporate governance space who are also members and active participants. And I think it's a tremendous organization for mutual aid and support, for learning, for education, for benchmarking, and for career development. And that, for me, has been the experience I've had from starting almost 20 years ago when I was first introduced into uh, my experience now as, as chair. And are there any sort of lessons? Obviously, the society isn't a sort of a, a S&P 500 company. It's a different type of organization. But are there any sort of lessons from a government's perspective that you take to being, being chair? Yeah, a, a lot, actually. I think the corporate secretary role is one that not many people understand the, the breadth, right? The, there, there are very few roles where you are helping with disclosure, you're engaging with investors. And as I say to my corporate secretary, and as was said to me when I was the corporate secretary at Uber, is that there's no one else in an organization who engages with the board more than a corporate secretary. Literally, it's an incredibly significant role. And that's just the beginning, right? Because you are also advising the management team and the rest of the organization. And typically you're owning a lot of these governance processes. And so it's a really, I think, critical role that people have. And and I think the society is a great uh, institution and a great uh, resource for people who hold that role just to learn all of the things that are associated with being a successful and effective corporate secretary. And so I'm just I'm just a huge fan. You know, we had our national conference uh, earlier this summer in Salt Lake City. And it was an incredible uh, conference. We had almost 700 people. And if we played a bingo game, the word challenge would have been said quite a bit because there are lots of challenges that public companies are facing right now. And in turn, that corporate secretaries are helping companies manage through. And just to name a couple of them, then you've got the climate rules that are coming sometime in the next couple of months, notwithstanding the voluntary climate disclosures that many companies are already making. You've got investor pressure on a variety of things from how you're conducting your annual meeting, 
to your DEI practices, to your climate disclosures, to your board structures, to your executive compensation, lots of pressure around there. Uh, companies are at the crosswinds from an ESG perspective. I, I'm sure it's something that you and many of your readers are familiar with, this idea of being betwixt and between. You want to be responsible to all of your stakeholders from an ESG perspective, but you also want to avoid uh, triggering you know, um, attorneys general coming after you and other folks looking at you from a anti-ESG perspective. And how do you as a corporate secretary or as a general counsel or just as an advisor advise management and a board and, and, and navigating those kinds of issues? Shareholder proposals, uh, more ESG proposals. And so there's lots of challenges, but there are also some great opportunities. And I like to pair those two together because we can talk about the challenges, but on the flip side, the organization is great in terms of creating community. You know, when I have a tough disclosure question, when I have a tough uh, governance question, when I'm not sure how to respond to an investor question or, or a media question on a particular topic, the society is there for me, right? We've got benchmarking, we do tons of surveys, and there are tons of people that I can just pick up the phone and say, okay, how did you manage this? I, I saw the headlines. I'm sorry you went through that. I'm getting ready to go through it. What do I need to do to make it make it better, at least to avoid some, some of the issues? It's a mutual aid and support organization, which I think is helpful. And um, you're looking for a, a new present CEO at the moment. Um, what sort of person are you looking for? What sort of um, skills, backgrounds will be helpful, do you think? Sure. So obviously the name of the organization is the uh, Society for Corporate Governance. So someone with a corporate governance uh, tool set is, is clearly yep. helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we want someone who is connected to the corporate secretary community. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they've been a corporate secretary, although that's obviously helpful. Uh, we've had some very successful prior CEOs who did not come from a corporate secretary role, but came from another part of the governance community, so long as they're familiar with the organization and the people that are in it. So that's super helpful. And then, as I mentioned, we've got a lot of great opportunities and challenges in front of us. We're evolving our strategy as an organization, as all organizations do over time. We need someone who can help us think through what does the, uh, corporate governance look like 10 years from now? And how can we best serve the people that are facilitating that transition period, right? So that's one critical thing. How do we take uh, advantage of technology in fulfilling our mission? How can we make sure that chapters are engaged and remain engaged in, uh, on a local level? And so those are some of the most significant characteristics. But the last one, of course, is leadership. You know, we're an organization that has more than 3,700 members. We are frequently in front of Congress and the SEC and other constituencies, and we need a really strong leader who, who can help re represent us in each of those fora. And I'm, and I'm quite confident we'll find some great, uh, some great candidates out there. I'm sure you will. Um, so changing tax like now, but to a, a topic that I'm sure is of um, interest slash concern slash excitement to many of your, your members and your, and your sort of colleagues, and to, I'm talking, of course, about artificial intelligence. So just to start, it's a topic that, that we've been covering uh, at Corporate Secretary and will be continue to on an ongoing basis. But I'd just like to get your perspectives on some of the ways you think that the AI technology might be used by in-house counsel uh, and their, their colleagues now and, and sort of going forward in the foreseeable future, at least, because obviously no one knows quite where this is going to lead. Yeah, absolutely. And let me just start by saying, 
I let's go back in time. Let's think about what things were like in say 1991, 1990, as the advent of the internet was just beginning, right? And I remember my first call from a, call, a friend of mine at Stanford who said, "Here, we've got this thing that's called electronic mail." <laughs> Literally, that's what he said, electronic mail. I said, well, why would I want to do that? I could just write you a letter. That's a literal quote. I actually said that at the time. And then you fast forward to where things are now, where the internet has been incorporated in every facet of our daily life, from your refrigerator to your phone, to your iPad, to your car, to all of these tools. And just think about what happened along the way, right? And I think in a very similar fashion, we are at that 1990 moment when someone first told me about electronic mail. Now, instead of electronic mail, we're talking about artificial intelligence, right? But it's a, I think it's a very similar kind of thing. We don't know right now where artificial intelligence is going. Full stop. No one knows where it's going, right? We, but we'll, we'll, the one thing we do know is that it's going to change, right? We know that it's going to change. And, and how does that change happen? And who, who wins at the end of that change, right? Like, think about this. You know, I worked at Uber. Uber only worked because you had the app and the app was part of the app store. The app store was part of this ecosystem, was built into the iPhone that was built on using the internet for all of these things, right? No one would have guessed in 1990 that you could have created something attached to your phone that through putting a couple coordinates in, a driver would show up within three or four minutes, right? In a very similar way, we know that there are going to be applications using AI 10 years from now that we can't even conceive of right now. And so the, I think the main thing is for most of us to try to get as educated on what AI is and what it isn't as much as possible, setting aside the hype, setting aside you know, the exuberance that you hear, hear from folks within the AI community, and really coming back to first principles, which is if AI is a tool that we know is going to evolve over time, you know, what can you do to get ready for that evolution? How can you contribute and participate in it? And I think from a legal perspective and from a governance perspective, that same concept completely holds. We need to think about it like the internet back in 1990 and explore it. You know, one of the things that I've done with my team here at Broadridge, we've got a whole artificial intelligence initiative that we started probably three or four months ago. Now, just so you know, we've had things with AI for years. Like it's not necessarily new, but but there's a new focus on it as chat GPT and some of these other generative AI tools have reached a level of sophistication that it's really accelerating their adoption by, you know, companies, right? And so within this initiative, what I've said to my legal team and to the compliance team and, and the, the governance team is I want you to go and experiment. That's that's the word that I use. I want you to experiment. I want you to experiment safely. We can come back to what people are doing specifically, but I want people to experiment and get familiar with it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't, I mean, you know, I can, I can think of a number of ways where it's already being applied and where those applications can help us be more efficient, better, faster, frankly, focus on the things that are most important. But the point is, you, you're, you're not going to get anywhere by sticking your head in the sand and ignoring it. it. It will, it does impact all of us. It will impact all of us more. And so I'd rather be the person in 1990 who's saying, oh, well, let me open up this first email account and, exp and experiment with email. I wish I'd been one of those people. He also called me and said, hey, these guys started this thing called Google. It's really interesting. And I've wish I thought back then to invest. Well, those opportunities are happening right now, by the way. The point is, don't be afraid of it. You got to experiment it. You got to try it out, get to know what it is and how it works. And then you can be informed as you're thinking about what are the rules of the road? Whether the, what are the accepted 
applications of it and uses of it for me and for my organization. I mean, obviously, the, the broad perception of AI as in other technological tools is it'll sort of free up um, attorneys to do more sort of value-added work, to be more, more act in a more advisory capacity rather than some of the um, more administrative tasks. Is that, is that the sort of thing you're talking about and what, where, where do you think it'll come in handy? Absolutely. And I'll give a couple examples. First thing is we had a discussion with our uh, internal product and technology teams. We did a presentation for the board. And one of the things that we were talking about in that presentation was the way that companies are leveraging artificial intelligence, and particularly in the context of, uh, of programming and development. And so I'll just give this one as, a, as an example. There's this fear that uh, there are going to be fewer engineers, fewer developers that are needed because of AI. But what at least the research to date has shown is that instead of it completely displacing roles, it's really shifted roles. And it's created more of a need for people that are skilled in using AI to use it. So the example that I would give you is there is a, an experiment where they basically had two groups of developers and they gave each group of developers this objective. We want you to develop this program, right? And one set of developers was encouraged and given permission to use artificial intelligence code development tools. The other one wasn't. And what they found was that even if the code ultimately was the same, like right? again, within very, very small margin, the two sets of code were pretty much affected the same way. But the team that was able to use AI was able to do it much more quickly and much more efficiently because they were able to do the first draft of that code just using AI. And then the, the engineers were uh, basically iterating on that to get to the final product. But then when we did testing, it passed all of the same tests and the same way that completely manually drafted code would have would have passed, but they did it in a much, much faster way. And I think that I'm gonna get the number wrong, but it was like 40% faster. So just think about that from an efficiency perspective. For so what can you do with 40% of your time back, right? So suddenly you've got a half of an engineer uh, available to you. How how much more code could be developed? And the key was that that group that was using the AI tools was exp expert and figuring out what prompts to use, how to look at the AI tool, I mean, the, the, what, what the code that came out of the AI tool, et cetera. And that, and that was really where the skills came in. And so I think in a very similar way, we are going to need all of us, lawyers, you know, finance folks, governance folks, more generally business people to be familiar enough with AI to be able to use it efficiently so like those engineers in my example, you can create more opportunity to do other things. Take the, that first draft that normally would have taken you a day or two. Now the AI tool is doing that first draft. You can use that time to do something else. And then you come back to come back to what's come out of the AI tool and you're further ahead than you would have been had you done it all manually. And I think that same example applies to us. Personally, just to give you a personal example, I, 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 one of the things experiment that I wanted to do was, okay, one of the things you can do with ChatGPT is you can use it to actually create a, a PowerPoint using Visual Basic. And so uh, I had to do a, a presentation for um, one of my executives. We were wor working on putting a committee together and I basically put in some very basic prompts, you know, and basically within literally 15 minutes, I put in the first prompt, didn't come back with anything useful. I reframed my question, it came back with more data. I reframed it again, it came back with a different version. I reframed it. and so I just kept going back at it. Yeah, okay, modify the last question to add bullet points, modify the last question to focus on this, modify. The point is in like 15 minutes, I had a fully written out presentation that addressed this particular question that I was working on with an ex executive. And then now 
I will confess, Ben, my, my, my visual basic skills are not that great. So it took me a little bit more time to get it into the PowerPoint format than would have been the case if I was like an expert in visual basic. But the point is I developed this whole presentation within maybe an hour. And then after that, it was just iterating. So the example is if you need to do a first draft of something, it's incredibly useful and efficient to use an AI tool to use that first draft. But I don't know about you, I am a much better editor than I am initial drafter. So having that first draft done and dusted so I could just start iterating and cleaning up and editing and revising drastically, drastically sped up that process of putting something together. And that's just one use case. There are many more. Sure. Well, I mean, you alluded to this a bit early on, but of course there is a need to have guardrails in place, um, whether, you know, whether it's being used, AI is being used by in-house counsel, corporate secretary, the government team, or by just anyone across the the company and it applies equally. What are some of the sort of key uh, safeguards you think that companies should be considering putting in place? And obviously their general counsel will be uh, very involved with that. Yeah. Well, first of all, it really depends on the company and what and what industry they're in. For us, you know, we are a service provider of technology to the financial services industry. And so there are some risks that we just can't take as it relates to anything relating to client products and services. So rule number one is do no harm. And that relates to uh, information security, data protection, uh, privacy more broadly, client data in any way, shape or form, you gotta be super careful about. It also relates to um, more more common things like for us as a uh, service provider in the securities industry, when we provide a tool to a client that uses AI, we need to make sure that that tool complies with SEC rules. So for example, we launched a product earlier this year called Bond GPT, Bond GPT. And what it does basically, it's a it's a chat bot that helps uh, banks and other folks in financial services evaluate a said bond instrument of debt instruments. And using this tool, you can run a query like, you know, what are the five best coupons available right now? What is the the smallest difference in trading price and, you know, origination price in this set of uh, bonds? What's happening in this industry, et cetera. But the key thing was we had to make sure it's not providing investment advice, right? Because we we do not want to create a tool that's going to suddenly make us or our clients an investment advisor if they don't want to. So we had to frame that that this tool to make sure that it's just providing information. It's not making recommendations. It doesn't. And there's you know a litany of other rules. And so the point has been, I think every organization that is thinking about AI needs to first think about who they are what the constraints from a compliance, legal, regulatory perspective that that apply to them and making sure that those constraints are built into the system. And so what we did when AI1 Chat GPT first kind of hit the scene, we created a working group that was focused on governance around Chat GPT. And we came up with an interim policy that basically said, you can't use this tool unless you go through legal compliance and this working group, A. B, we set up our systems to make sure that anyone who tried to hit ChatPT through a browser or anything like that, they got a pop-up that said, hey, you can't do this. You need to go to this governance committee that's been created. And then we, we redoubled down on all of the data loss and other provisions that we apply generally to make sure that, that there was no opportunity for someone to use a tool like that to extract client data or and, and or to insert bad code into our 
system. And so we created a sandbox where people can experiment using uh, a variety of AI tools. And then the rule is, but before you put anything into production, you need to come back to the governance group to make sure you get specific approval. And that approval will uh, include legal, compliance, private, privacy, risk, and uh, cybersecurity. And so, Ben, that's, that's how we've approached it. So, so looking ahead, and, and again, you sort of mentioned being able to understand, you know, and, and use these sort of technology uh, correctly. Uh, there is a requirement, and at least in some bar associations for attorneys, that they have a uh, understand technology that, that they're using. Obviously, you work with a technology company. Not all lawyers are, well, not all people, I include very much myself, very much so myself, don't necessarily understand these things. Is that, do you think going forward, there will be, this will become part of like law school training or something that you learn as an attorney when you join a company? How does that sort of factor into sort of the career path of, of lawyers, do you think, going forward? That's a great question. I, I, I think over time, just, and again, I, I, I hate to go back to it, but it's like the internet. You know, there's no law school class anymore that's like the law of the internet. Well, they're, they're right. But, but what will happen is in contracts class, in torts class, and civ, you know, civ pro, criminal, crim law, you will start to learn about the ways in which artificial intelligence may impact that particular discipline. And that, Ben, is my expectation as, as, as things evolve over time. I think in the near term, though, I do think there will be more focus on putting together very focused classes in training around all of the range of issues associated with artificial intelligence. And we've talked about some of them, privacy, cybersecurity, data protection, criminal law, civil law. I give you one, one evolving area that I think is really critical for companies to think about is ethics. What are the ethics of artificial intelligence? And think about all of the things that could happen. For example, one of the rules that we've imposed on ourselves, you can't use artificial intelligence for anything relating to HR. No, no, uh, certainly no decision-making can be based on that. So we don't want any bias to influence the process. We want to make sure that we can, and that's from hiring, retention, you know, termination, et cetera. You can use data, data that comes from it as a, you know, consideration, but the AI can't be the decision-making tool, right? Because there's just too much at risk in doing so. Similarly, anytime you're building AI into a product or service, you need to think about, what are the potential biases that I'm building in there? I'll give you an easy example, facial recognition technology, that AI that's based on top of that. Well, listen, for someone of darker skin, many of those facial recognition tools actually don't work that well. Like they just don't for, for darker skinned people. And so as you're, if you're building a tool that's based on that, you need to make sure that your tool, that it accounts for those kinds of biases in the technology itself, right? Same thing around decision-making, right? If you are making decisions around loans or credit or any of those sorts of things and the model that ai is using incorporates biases in the context of housing discrimination etc that could influence the decision making that, that that tool is is intended to inform that's a risk right you could conceivably be putting your company at risk for violating anti-discrimination laws to the extent that the decision making incorporates those kinds of biases and so the point has been that i i think that all of us have to really be thoughtful around how we are planning to use artificial intelligence tools and making sure that whatever those use cases are, are as devoid of bias uh, and conflicts of interest as possible. Well, there's so much more uh, to talk about in this, but just as a, just for a, as a sort of a parting gift for our, for our listeners, you sort of like greatest hope 
greatest fear for, for AI when as it as it pertains to, to lawyers and, and other government professionals? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So greatest hope. Look, I hope that it um, helps us be faster and smarter and more efficient. I hope it reduces costs. I hope that it helps create more jobs and not destroy more jobs and job opportunities. I hope that it ended up being a just tool to make the world a more equitable place. And of course, my fears is that it does none of those things and that it, you know, it's not accretive for jobs, that it produces more bias, not less, that it's used to destroy value, not create value, that it's inequitable in the way that it creates opportunities around the world. And so those are the things that, you know, that I think about when it comes to AI. Uh, but I think I'm hopeful that a lot like the internet, the good largely outweighs the bad. I, I think there will be bad. I think the bad is going to be inevitable. But the question is, does the good outweigh it? And, and my hope is that it does. Okay, Gabs, thank you so much for joining us. It's fascinating to hear your thoughts on that. And hopefully we can, uh, it's an ongoing conversation and hopefully we can return to that soon. Great. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. Mark your calendar and book your all-access pass now for Governance Live 2023, our annual festival of corporate governance that features three major events across two days on November the 7th and 8th. Don't miss out. Join more than 500 leading governance professionals in New York for the M&A and Activism Forum, the Corporate Secretary Forum and the Corporate Governance Awards 2023. Governance Live 2023 is your one-stop shop to learn from the last 12 months. Celebrate your hard work and prepare for what will come in 2024. Protect and enhance your shareholder values and diverse your governance strategies for next year. The Gala Awards Night is the biggest celebration of governance excellence, achievement and innovation in North America. Visit corporatesecretary.com slash governance live to find out more and to get your discounted early bird all access pass to these three essential events. See you in New York from all of us at Corporate Secretary. And we're back with the Governance Matters podcast. Thanks again to Kia Gums. Next up, Corporate Secretary and IR Magazine recently hosted the Summer ESG Integration Forum in New York. Governance and investor relations experts gathered for a day of discussions about the present and the future of ESG, including pushback against companies' efforts in the area, developments in regulation and standards, producing more detailed data, best practices in board oversight, and matching companies to sustainable investors. I sat down with senior conference producer Lawrence Taylor at the end of the day to recap some of the main talking points raised during the event. So you made it through another ESG integration forum summer. Uh, ben, what were some of your key takeaways from today's discussion? Yeah, it's been fabulous. Well, I think the overwhelming theme has been um, whether anti-ESG uh, movements are getting much traction. And while uh, I think in general people were quite keen to take note of them, they're also quite optimistic in that it's maybe a little bit more bark than bite. Um, just uh, starting us off, Starting off the day, Rebecca Corbyn, who's founder and CEO of Corbyn Advisors, um, presented some of the data from some research that her firm has done, which certainly shows the uh, 
continuing strength of ESG from an investment perspective. Um, more than half of issuers in her research uh, noted that executives consider ESG to be very important to their company's long-term success, uh, more than doubling that figure since 2019. And 90% uh, of investors place at least some importance on ESG when making investment decisions, the highest level ever recorded by the firm and I, in several years of doing that research. So that was, uh, I think, very encouraging for many people in the room. On the other hand, another sort of trend over the day was whether the term ESG uh, continues to be uh, helpful. And um, I think in some cases, people's concern is that it's become politicised, which means that it obviously it automatically attracts um, attention that maybe isn't warranted based on what ESG actually is. So some of the alternatives I think suggested to that is to focus on maybe using the word sustainability more often. Um, and also the focus on materiality. Um, Blackfoot, for example, has uh, sort of switched out using ESG um, to some extent with materiality, sustainability-related risks and opportunities, which uh, isn't quite as snappy, but um, I think uh, gets more to the heart of what ESG investing actually is rather than the kind of um, somewhat circus-like um, sort of attention and it gets to certain corners. This is, speaking of which, um, uh, Emmanuel Paluka, Managing Director and Head of Suitability Advisory with Alliance Advisors, noted that she thinks that some of the opponents of ESG have perhaps got the wrong end of the stick in terms of understanding what it actually means. Critics seem to think uh, it sort of involves putting environmental and social issues, uh, almost as moral issues, um, above profitability and financial concerns, uh, whereas in fact, as Manuel pointed out, um, and quoted someone else she had heard saying, that ENS issues aren't financial, aren't non-financial rather, but rather pre-financial. We also noticed um, sort of growing focus on human rights due diligence, in part brought on by new regulations and impending regulations in the EU, uh, which are obviously going to, um, for many companies, lead to them uh, having to do more um, detailed and pay more attention to those sorts of issues. And finally, just as a kind of uh, Sort of summing up the day in a way, Tejal Patel, Executive Director at SOC Investment Group, basically told companies don't overcorrect. She urged companies not to be deterred by the anti-ESG headwinds. Um, in fact, she urged them to keep in place the programs they've created because investors want to see them. And in fact, if a company is going to, says it's going to be doing something, particularly in regards to the DEI, it should really make sure she does, she said. So uh, there you go. That's um, a lot of, sort of pushback against the pushback when it comes to ESG. How about, how about you, Lawrence? What did you yeah. uh, take away? Yeah, we've been, each time we've done this event recently, we've provoked sessions and ESG backlash. Um, this felt like the first time where that conversation spilled out completely from, from its, you know, the confines of that panel and kind of came into almost every discussion we had. But it came up in lots of different ways. Like you say, there's, there's different kinds of resistance to ESG. There's politicisation of ESG and people who I suppose are against ESG theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also just scepticism as to whether ESG is doing what it's set out to do. That was something which we heard much more, whether ESG is fulfilling the objectives that it has built into it um, and that's it's taken more seriously right by, yeah, by yeah. professionals in the area rather than um, people who are getting um, you know get upset about woke and wokeness yeah exactly and that was the um, yeah that, that was just what we heard a lot is, is whether 
ESG, like you say, is a helpful bucket for kind of talking about this or whether it needs to be replaced. I do wonder if it is replaced, though, whether we just be having the same conversation down the line um, right. with whatever new term comes to, comes to replace it. Well, it was CSR, and before that it was uh, very, has, has had very different incarnations over the, the years. So There is possibly some argument for detaching the ES. I think that came up a lot as well, as ESG is a mix of different objectives. Sometimes they might be in conflict with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it is better to just talk about you know, reducing emissions, for example, right. and, and then have a separate conversation around you know, human capital management issues. Um, but I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think sometimes just saying what something actually is, rather than trying to, I'm not saying that ESG is in any way trying to obfuscate what it is, but just literally saying, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're focusing on. So I think some agree the BlackRock term, focusing on materiality, um, is an example of that, which is saying we are looking at an array of material, risk and opportunity factors related to investments. And those might include things such as climate risk, human capital management, diversity, that sort of thing. It makes it a little bit more difficult to attack from a sort of political point of view and also perhaps gets more to the root of it from an investment, an investment thesis. So who knows? But like I say, it's not as easy as saying ESG and will meet to much longer headlines. So let's, we'll see. Well, we'll see. I mean, for the time being, this is still the ESG integration forum, which will be um, for the, for going forward, because I do think it you know, provides a good space to talk about the anti-ESG stuff as well. It exactly. It's a space to talk about what, what ESG should be perhaps for the, you know, how to, how to change the name or the merits of changing the name. But um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, that, that was my biggest takeaway from this. Well, thank you to everyone who came. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in a few months' time for doing this all over again uh, in the winter. On November the 30th in New York, planning uh, more strategically for the 2024 proxy season. But yeah, we'll be carrying on and building a lot of conversations we have today, for sure. Well, thanks for joining us, Lawrence. Thanks. Thank you. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of the Governance Matters podcast with me, Ben Maiden. If you enjoyed the show, please make sure to like, subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, thanks for listening.